Well, good morning to you, Joy Community Fellowship of Pittman. Uh, I am so thankful to be here with you. When I think about um, this church, uh, it is so much uh, the reason why I am who I am, and frankly, why uh, the church, uh, Joy Community Fellowship of Williamstown, is the church that it is. It is through um, God's working through this church, and so I am so deeply thankful for this congregation and know that we love you and we pray for you regularly and are, above all, thankful for um, our partnership in the gospel together. Uh, Larry did mention that I have uh, a bit of a difficult task here ahead of me that was mutually decided on, so if it goes well, I'll take credit. If not, it's Larry's fault. No, I'm just playing. (laughs) No, I love Larry, and he's been such an encouragement to me and a a very significant leader in my life. So um, it is a difficult task, uh, if you don't mind. Uh, Let's go to the Lord for prayer and ask him for his help. Lord, I I pray that you would, by your spirit, use this weak, poor, needy man to communicate faithfully your word. I pray that you would help us to see wonderful things in your law, that above all, Christ would be exalted that we would see our need again for your kindness and compassion and grace to us in Christ and that our hearts would find rest in him again. Lord, be pleased. Nourish your people. Strengthen their faith. Encourage them and build them up through this time for the sake of your glory. And for our joy in you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In a newer book on church leadership, pastor and author Paul Tripp begins his book with this jarring statement. He says, we, and the we is the church, have a leadership crisis. When you think about church leadership... What rises to the surface in your heart? Maybe it's gratitude. Maybe cynicism. Maybe it's fear or respect. Maybe you're encouraged. Maybe you're discouraged. Whatever it is, though, we all know this. That where there are godly leaders, God's people flourish And where there are ungodly leaders, God's people wither. With godly leadership, there is the potential for tremendous blessing and fruit and growth. But with ungodly leaders, there is the inevitable expectation of devastation, of mental, emotional, and spiritual damage. And so at the risk of stating the obvious, you need... And I need 
and we need godly leaders. So this morning, I'd like us to examine what we can learn about leadership from the book of Leviticus. Yes, you heard that right, the book of Leviticus. It is that third book in the Pentateuch that many of us are tempted to skip in our reading plan. And uh, it's, it's pretty difficult to drop into Leviticus for a standalone sermon, but I think, I think we might be okay this morning um, because uh, while most of the book of Leviticus is addressed to all of Israel, there are two chapters, Leviticus 21 and 22, and you can turn there now if you like, where God, through Moses, addresses specifically leaders. There's this little section towards the end of Leviticus, and God aims his words through Moses at leaders. Now, I'm not going to read the entirety of both of those chapters, but if you have your Bible in front of you, you can turn with me, and I'm going to read a passage from chapter 22, starting in verse 1, and I'll pull out some different passages as we go. I'm going to turn there myself. So if you have God's Word in front of you, you, you can follow along with me. Chapter 22, starting in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, so that they abstain from the holy things of the people of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so that they do not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. Say to them, If any one of all your offspring throughout your generations approaches the holy things that the people of Israel dedicate to the Lord while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. This is God's word. Here the Lord through Moses intends to address Aaron and his sons, who are the priests. And now before we zoom in on the priests and what God expects of them, you need to know a little bit about how they fit into the larger picture of the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus was written to answer one all-important question. It's a glorious question. The question is, how can sinners enter in and dwell with a holy God? That's, that's the question the whole book of Leviticus is trying to answer. How can sinners enter in and dwell with a holy God? Uh, Exodus, if, if you don't know, ends with a problem. Uh, Exodus ends in the wilderness, and the tabernacle has been built, and the glory cloud has settled, settled upon the tabernacle, but no one, not even Moses, can go in. No one can go into the place where God dwells, and the reason is because God is holy and Israel is impure. And so the whole book of Leviticus is God graciously providing a way for sinners to come in through various sacrifices and ritual cleansings and abstaining from unclean foods and avoiding certain bodily fluids. There's some chapters in the Leviticus that get all weird and gross. But it's, it's God's provision that they might enter into the holy place. They might enter into the tabernacle. They might enter into his presence. Uh, and, and, and of course, this all reaches its climax in this one day that's set aside, the day of atonement where the high priest would go in to the holy of holies and make atonement for all the sins of God's people. And now all these things required the administration of priests. These things re- required Priests, leaders, men set aside as leaders in Israel to mediate the mercy of God through sacrifice. 
And in response to this merciful provision, God's people were called to live holy and upright lives set apart for the worship of Yahweh. And in these two chapters, God turns his attention specifically to the priests, to the leaders, to to their way of life, to the holy and upright lives that that he calls them to live as leaders. Now, from the jump, you need to know that there's not like a one-to-one correlation between your experience of leadership in the church and Israel's experience of leadership in Israel. We are not living in a theocratic state governed by Old Testament law. The church is not led by priests who make sacrifices on behalf of the people. The tabernacle is not a physical place we enter into through the administration of priests. And yet there are still some very important things that we can learn about leadership, about godly leadership from this passage. And we would be wise to listen because as we've already said, godly leadership is integral to the health of the church. It's necessary. We need leaders. I need godly leaders. You need godly leaders. And even as Larry prayed, uh, if, if you're, uh, I, I am uh, intending to address this sermon primarily to the leaders in this church, uh, but uh, you're either a leader here or you're someone who is under leaders. And even if you're not a leader in the church, uh, you may be a leader in your home, a husband, a father, and, and, and even mothers. You're, you're called to lead in the home your children. Right? There are a, a variety of different capacities in which people lead in the church and in their home, um, and so we can make broad application, though my primary intention here is to address uh, the leaders of the church. So this passage moves us to consider two things, the life of God's leaders and then the hope of God's leaders, the life of God's leaders and the hope of God's leaders. So l- let's look first at the life of God's leaders. When the world looks for a leader, when the world looks out and tries to pick, this is what a leader is. The world looks for charisma and confidence, a commanding presence, vision, talent, and so on. But when the Bible looks for a leader, far and away the most important quality, you know what it is? Holiness. Holiness. In other words, the Bible doesn't first ask a prospective leader how gifted or how talented they are. It asks, is your life worth following? Is your life the kind of life that's worth following? It's it's character over charisma all day long. As we look at the instruction God gives to the priest, we see five descriptions of a godly leader's life. So I want to work through those five briefly with you. The first is uh, a leader's life is a consecrated life. Uh, You can see that there in the text. If you look at Leviticus 21, starting in verse 10, it is a consecrated life. In other words, they are chosen for and dedicated to the service of God above all. Look at verse 10. Uh, We read, "The, the priest who is chief among his brothers on whose head the anointing oil is poured and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose nor tear his clothes. He shall not go into any dead bodies nor make himself unclean, even for his father or for his mother. He shall not go out of the sanctuary lest he profane the sanctuary of his God. For the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am the Lord. 
So to be consecrated is to be set apart. And one way in which God sets priests apart is that he prohibited them from coming into contact with death because of its close connection to sin. Right? Death, of course, is the consequence of sin. So for most of Israel, death meant a period of mourning and a funeral and then a process of ritual cleansing by which they would be made fit to enter in again. But what we see here is that because of their consecration as priests, because of their set-apartness, God prohibited them from mourning the dead as the rest of Israel did. Uh, priests were only allowed to attend the funerals of those who were in their immediate family. A friend dies, distant relative, the priest is not permitted to attend the funeral, to be a part of mourning the loss of that family member, that friend. And the restrictions for the high priest are even more severe. Uh, for the high priest, he couldn't mourn the dead at all. No, no weeping, no torn clothes, no funeral, no disheveled hair. He had to remain free, completely free from any contact with death so that he could minister before the God of life in the tabernacle. Above all, even above mourning, his closest family members, he was to be devoted to the service of God. That's the point. Godly leaders are devoted to the Lord above all, more than anything. More than anything, they, they want his will, they want his purposes, they want his name to be glorified, like the general who devotes himself and his men to the single cause of victory, to his highest cause, or like, to the, sh like the ship's captain you know, to vote, who devotes himself and his crew to the safe arrival of his vessel. It's the overriding purpose, the overriding cause. So it is with godly leaders. They are single-minded in their devotion to God's glory. There's no personal ambition, no pursuit of self-glory, only a desire to be faithful in their service to God, to be used as God's instrument for his glory. And so it is a life marked by humility and sacrifice. Let me address um, the members here in this church. Uh, the leaders know uh, what sacrifice is involved in serving as an elder in a church. Um, it, it comes with burden. It comes with the responsibility of, of caring for souls, and, and, and a lot of times that requires sacrifice. It, it requires laying down your plans, your ambitions, your goals to make sure that Jesus' sheep are being cared for. I, I want to exhort you, though, that it also means a lot of sacrifice for their families. You know, one of the things that you see here, you think about the high priest. The high priest could marry and have a family. And in any instance where there was a funeral or, or death, he was not present. And that burden fell on his family. 
It was a sacrifice his family had to make. It was a sacrifice. The, 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 the spouses, the children of priests, there were real sacrifices that had to be made. So why am I saying this? I, I want to exhort you to, to keep in mind the families of those who serve as leaders in the church. Pray for them. Encourage them. They make real sacrifices with the time that they give to their husbands and their fathers to serve the flock. Real sacrifices of, of time and effort and energy and vitality and money and, and all kinds of things. So, so pray for them. Encourage them. Build them up. Be sensitive to the, to the needs of those families who are families of leaders in this church. They live a consecrated life. They also live an irreproachable life. Look at Leviticus 21, verse 7. We read, They shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled, neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. God called his priest to live a life above reproach. That is blameless without even the faintest hint of impropriety. The example given here is of marriage. A priest could not marry a woman who had been a prostitute, who had been sexually assaulted or divorced because it would bring the priest too close to the stain of sin. And again, if you were to keep reading, you would see that the requirements of the chief priest are even more stringent. Uh, he cannot marry all of those listed that I just listed, uh, but he also could not marry a widow because of her proximity to death. Maybe, maybe that seems strange, but marriage, as many of you know, was intended by God to illustrate the intimacy of his relationship with his people, and so the leaders were required to maintain the highest standards of marriage. They could not be perceived in any way to be falling short of God's ideal, which was to reflect the nature of his relationship to his people. Their marriages had to be completely above reproach, without the hint of any impropriety, beyond any suspicion of indecency. And of course, this demand for an irreproachable life extended beyond just who they chose to marry. Every area of their lives had to be blameless and above suspicion. They were priests serving in the dwelling place of God. There was to be a life of transparent moral excellence. It should come as no surprise to us then that in both places, when Paul lays out qualifications for elders and overseers in the church, he begins with this, they must be above reproach. And really, by the way, if you were to go back, we read one of those descriptions in 1 Timothy 3, you could go and read the other one in Titus 1. Uh, really, the rest of those qualifications, you could understand as an elaboration on what it means to be above reproach. This is their call, to be above reproach. They must be a husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, and, and so on. They must be above any suspicion of indecency. The lives of leaders are inevitably more closely scrutinized and so they bear a responsibility to live transparent lives of holiness for the glory of God and for the sake of those they lead. And so the elders before you are open 
to your examination. And let me say to you also, um, your, the responsibility ultimately to choose these kinds of leaders falls on the members of the church. So, you know, maybe you're here and you're like, okay, there's a sermon to leaders and I'm not a leader, so this isn't, yep, but you bear a responsibility to choose godly leaders. You need to know what to look for. When you're looking for a godly leader, when you're looking for an elder in the church, uh, godly leaders are consecrated in their lives. They are irreproachable. They also live a sound life. A sound life is closely related to an irreproachable life, but there's, a, there's an emphasis. There's an emphasis on the idea of integrity. Look at, look at Leviticus 21.16. It says, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron saying, none of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. When God chose leaders for Israel, he excluded anyone with any kind of blemish. If they were blind, if they were lame, if, you're continue, if you continue reading, you'll see a, a, a list of things, of physical conditions that would disqualify, blind, lame, disproportionate limbs, a hunchback, any kind of skin disease. They needed not only a healthy spiritual life, but a actual healthy body. In other words, they needed to be sound. Now, maybe that feels unfair or discriminatory. You know, why should the guy born blind be penalized? And it's important that you hear me say that the Bible teaches that everyone uh, regardless of deformity or medical limitation, is an image bearer of God, equal in dignity and worth. But when God addresses leaders here in Leviticus, he's making a point. And here's the point. In order to come into God's presence, you need to be whole. You need to be whole. You need to be complete, sound, there must be a, a, a soundness in the same way that animals designated for sacrifice had to be without the blemish or spot. And you can read, there's, a, there's another description. If you go on to Leviticus 22, there'll be a description of how those animals, the things that would uh, disqualify an animal from being an adequate sacrifice, just as the animals had to be without spot or blemish, so the priests making those sacrifices were to be without blemish. The, the sacrificer and the sacrifice itself both had to be holy in order for atonement to be made. And this external purity, right, this external wholeness was always meant to be symbolic of the internal purity that God demands of all of, all of his people and especially of his leaders. This, this brings us to that necessary component for something to be sound. I'm not talking about like audible sound. For something to be sound, for something to have integrity, right? For something to be sound means it doesn't just look one way and it's actually something else. It, you know, if a, if a building that's constructed is sound, it means it doesn't just look good. Like when you see the building, it doesn't just look good. It means the building is actually good. It's sturdy. Like corners have not been cut. And so it is with 
godly leaders. The, the internal construction has integrity. Corners have not been cut. You, you know that Jesus reserves his harshest criticisms for the Pharisees, who he describes as whitewashed tombs, which is to say they're sparkly on the outside, but they're dead on the inside. They look good on the outside, but not so great on the inside. This must never be the case with God's leaders. They, they must be those who not only appear good, but who are good on the inside because corners have not been cut. The person they are in public and the person they are behind the pulpit is the same person that they are at home and when they're by themselves. They are truly the product of a real soundness of life. Theirs is a true godliness founded in their humble walk with God. Fourth, theirs is a vigilant life. Uh, if you look again at chapter 22, verse 1, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, so that they abstain from the holy things of the people of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so that they do not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. In Leviticus, in the, the, the priest's ministry in the tabernacle, he was responsible, they were responsible for handling the, the holy utensils and the things dedicated uh, to the Lord for making the sacrifices, and therefore they had to be extra vigilant that they did not become unclean in any way because they're handling the holy items. H have you ever seen a surgeon prepare for a procedure? You know, like in a movie. I'm, I'm guessing you probably haven't seen that in person. But in a movie, you know, they, the scrub and then, the, you know, they put the gloves in, the thing, and the mask. Those are all the technical terms. <laughs> they, the point is they take extreme care to make sure they are not bringing any kind of bacteria, any kind of uncleanness into the sterile operating room. Or have you ever uh, seen like how a um, museum curator like prepares to handle a priceless piece of art? And the, the lengths that they go to to make sure that there's no bacteria that's going to contaminate the painting. Their utmost attention is given to making sure they are clean because they know the environment they are working in must remain completely sterile and to bring dirt into that environment would be completely disastrous. That's a little picture of what was happening with the priests. They were going into the place where God dwelled. The tabernacle was like, literally like a clean room dropped into a world of corruption and sin and death. And so the priests had to be extremely vigilant to make sure that they were not unclean in any way, lest they taint, stain, profane the name of God by going into the tabernacle while unclean. To bring uncleanness into the place where sacrifices were offered before God would prove deadly for them and disastrous for God's people. And so they dared not become lax in maintaining their ritual cleanness or else risk being cut off from the presence of God altogether. Now, all of God's people, I, I you know, mentioned this in the beginning, all God's people in response to his gracious provision are called to live holy and upright lives 
And yet that responsibility is all the more intensified for God's leaders. When, when Paul speaks to the elders um, at Ephesus, as he's getting ready to depart, he encourages them saying, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock. And then I think of Paul's exhortation to his young protege, Timothy. In 1 Timothy 4.16, he says, keep a close watch on your life and doctrine. What does Paul mean? He means pay attention to what's happening in your heart. Keep a close watch. Pay careful attention to the war going on inside you between the old man and, and the new man. Be sensitive to and aware of the things that may lead you down a path of sin. And likewise, diligently pursue regular habits that promote godliness. Be on the lookout for temptation and train yourself to constantly have your finger on the pulse of your spiritual life, examining whether or not you are trusting in yourself or trusting in the Lord. Be ever watchful and hawk-eyed, looking for potential traps set by the enemy. Brothers and sisters, do you know that the, the leaders in your church, and, and, and leaders, let me speak to you, do you know that you are targets of the enemy's attack? We experienced that, uh, I, I think I can say confidently, um, in an intensified way when we planted the church. The, the hardest mornings for us every week were Sunday morning. Kids stuff, house stuff. There were a number of Sundays. Do you, you know last night my hot water heater broke? Again? I'm just... When you, listen, when you're a leader, you, you, you become the target of Satan's attacks because he knows that if you can destroy the leader, if you can bring the leader down, you can, you can wreak havoc among those who follow him. You know, strike the shepherd, scatter the sheep. So again, can I exhort you as a church to pray for your leaders. Uh, they, they are the targets of the enemy's attacks um, in, in some unique and intensified ways. We all are. We all uh, must deal with and, and wage war against the forces that are at work, uh, the evil, nefarious uh, principalities that are at work. And yet there is a sense in which leaders are the special targets of that attack. So they are vigilant. Uh, and lastly, uh, they live a, a self-conscious life. What I mean is that they are aware of the position of leadership that they hold and the example they set. Uh, in, in two places, uh, God gives his instructions to his priest through Moses. He reminds them that though they hold their position of leadership, uh, excuse me, that they hold their position of leadership and carry out duties in their office among the people. That their, their duties are to be carried out among the people. If, if you look there, look at Lever, uh, Leviticus 21, verses 1, and then also verses 14 through 15. Verse 1, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the son of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people. In verse 14, But he shall take as his wife a virgin of his own people, that he may not profane his offspring among his people, for I am the Lord who sanctifies him. 
So embedded in God's instruction is a reminder that they did not serve as priests in a vacuum. They weren't priests all alone or hidden, but among the people. They were to be around the people and among the people. And so necessarily God's leaders are self-conscious of their position among the people And they are self-conscious of their example, of the example they set, and aim then to live a life worthy of imitation. And so when Peter comes to exhort elders in 1 Peter 5, this is what he says. He says, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. You see that uh, same kind of language, right? Shepherd the flock of God among you. Shepherds are among the sheep. They understand themselves to be among the sheep. They're not up in some ivory tower. They're not, you know, separated. They're in and among the sheep. And as they are serving among the sheep, they are aware of the example that they set. They are among the sheep and are able to say to those around them what Paul said to the church in Corinth. Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. In other words, they can say, if you want to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord, use me as a template as I seek to follow the Lord. Do they do it perfectly? Is it a perfect template? No. But they can say, follow me. Use my life as a template. Now, if, if you're a leader or if you have aspirations to lead in any capacity, and, and, and just broadly, I can just, I can just make this application to everyone in this room if you're a Christian, A worthwhile question to ask is, if you said to those around you, if you like look at those around you and you said to them, follow my example, look at how I live my life for a week, follow my example, would the church be better because of it? Would Joy Community Fellowship of Pittman be a better church if people followed your example? For God's leaders... They must humbly, humbly, emphasize humbly, they must humbly answer yes, and others must joyfully affirm, yes, this is a person worthy of imitation. So God's leaders are consecrated. They're irreproachable. They're sound. They're vigilant. And they're self-conscious of their role as leaders. That's the life of, the God, of a godly leader. That's a, that's a picture of, of the leaders God's people need. I told you, you need godly leaders. That's the kind of leaders you need. The, the, the stakes could not be higher, right? With godly leader, leadership, God's people flourish. And with ungodly leaders, God's people are brought to spiritual ruin, And what we find as Israel's stories unfold, as we move beyond the pages of Leviticus and move through the Old Testament, we find as Israel's story unfolds that those in leadership fail over and over and over again. And and even as Larry prayed in his prayer of confession, the leaders in this room, myself included, fail over and over and over again to live up to these high and noble standards. 
Even the best of Israel's leaders fail to embody God's ideal for leadership. You know, nine times in chapters 21 and 22, uh, the Lord tells them that to fail in their role as leaders would be to profane themselves, to profane their offspring, to profane the name of God, to profane his sanctuaries, all of which would result in them being cut off from the presence of God. To fail in this way, to fail as leaders, to fail to uphold this standard of godly leadership is to be cut off from the presence of God. And you know, hundreds of years after Moses addresses the priests, God addresses the priests again through the prophet Zephaniah in very much the same way and tells us, the prophet Zephaniah tells us what became of God's priests. And here's what he said. You, you don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. Zephaniah 3, verse 1, we read, her officials within her, that's Jerusalem, that's God's people, her officials within her, in her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. As Israel's story unfolds, that's what can be said about God's leaders. They profane what is holy. Not long after God announces his judgment against Israel's leaders, uh, not long after Zephaniah, God announces his judgment against Israel's leaders through the prophet Ezekiel. And, and notice as I read this what becomes of the people. Ezekiel 34, 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought. With force and harshness you have ruled them. Not a great picture of God's leaders. Now listen to what happens to, the, to God's people, to the sheep. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Hmm. That's what happens without godly leaders. Sheep scattered, fed to wild beasts. Destruction, ruin. This is why we need godly leaders because the Bible says we are sheep. And you know, by the way, that when the Bible calls a sheep, it's not a compliment. Did you know that? These sheep are dumb. And left to themselves, they, they go their own way, which in our case is the way of sin and the way of rebellion. When the Bible uses the metaphor of sheep, you know this first. When the Bible uses the metaphor of sheep to describe our condition, it puts it like this. We're all like sheep who go our own way. I began by telling you there is a crisis in leadership. And in some sense, a leadership crisis is the banner that hangs over the entire sad story of humanity. Right. Well, wasn't, the, wasn't the fall in the garden, wasn't it a failure to lead? Wasn't Adam's failure a failure to lead? Adam was not devoted to God above all, but to his own sinful desires. 
His was not a sound or irreproachable life, but one that entertained the lies of the enemy. And it certainly wasn't vigilant, right? God gave him authority to exercise dominion over the garden, and, and he's just asleep on the watch. He lets the serpent come right in and start wreaking havoc. In the end, his ultimate failure was the example that he set for all his posterity in how to rebel against God. And we, like dumb sheep, have been following his example since the day we were born. We need godly leaders to lead us in the way of life. And yet, there is this question hanging in Leviticus, hanging in the Old Testament. Can any godly leaders be found? Is there any godly leaders? Is, 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 there, is there one leader? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Both the garden and Leviticus anticipate and points us forward to a leader who doesn't fail. To a, to a leader who, where every other leader had, had failed, he succeeds. To a greater priest, a, a greater leader, one who perfectly upheld God's call to leadership, Jesus Christ. You, you know, when Jesus began his ministry, we read this in Matthew 9. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He, he looks out and he sees sheep without a shepherd. In John's gospel, he tells us that he comes into the world to be the good shepherd, to be the leader that no one else had been. Jesus came into the world as the leader we need. Never was anyone more above reproach. In his thoughts and words and actions, he was absolutely blameless, without even the hint of hypocrisy. The same man in private, praying and crying out to his father as he was in public, teaching before the multitudes. The one who was so perfectly vigilant that though he was tempted in every way, yet he was without sin. No temptation got the best of him. No snare of the enemy entrapped him. He lived his life as a perfect example of godliness, calling his disciples to model their lives after him in every way. But his leadership is demonstrated not only in his perfect example, but in the love that he shows to those who are his followers, to his people. You see, the truest test of leadership is what you will give up, is what you will give to take care of the people who follow you, and Jesus held nothing back. Here's how you know you can trust his leadership, because when all the chips were down and Jesus had everything to lose, still he devoted himself to this single cause, this single-minded, all-consuming cause. And do you know what that cause was? The glory of God in your salvation. He set his face like flint towards Jerusalem, knowing what awaited him there, knowing that in order to secure the salvation of his sheep, he would have to give everything. He would have to bear in his body the weight of their sin, of their rebellion, of their failure in order to undo the corruption that had come through failed leadership. He would have to be led up a hill and crucified, and on that cross, he would be cut off from the presence of God. On the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's, he's utterly cut off from the presence of God. He takes into his heart the eternal punishment for wayward and leaderless sheep. 
And then we read this, this glorious verse that we read early in our passage. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. As leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. He is the true leader. He is the, the true savior. He is the one who is crucified and passes through death to resurrection so that all who follow him will likewise pass through death to glory. Hebrews 2.10 puts it this way, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. You know, that little word there, founder, it's an interesting word in the Greek. It's the word archagon. And it has the, the root word for ruler or leader in it. And it's, um, it means a, a, a leader, uh, an example in action. It's a leader in action. And the, you know, different translations do it different. They translate it different, differently because of this sort of ruler-leader uh, emphasis. The NASB translates it, translates it author. Uh, NIV translates it pioneer. I love the King James. This is where I think the King James actually gets a little better. The King James translate it, translates it the captain of our salvation. He, he is the captain of our salvation. Those who take refuge in him by faith and follow this captain can trust that by his suffering, he has purchased the full, the full forgiveness of their sins, that he will deliver them along the narrow way to life everlasting, that he will lead them to glory unfailingly. And they know because of his life, because of his death, because of his resurrection, that he can be trust, trusted to lead them now in this life. That you, you who have put your faith in Christ, you who have seen him bearing your sin on the cross, can trust him now to lead you in every circumstance. Can trust, you to, can trust him to, to lead you no matter what is happening. So, so that you sing, he leadeth me, O blessed thought. Is that a blessed thought to you? That Jesus Christ leads you. That you have as your leader, Jesus Christ. You know, there's all kinds of leaders that people look to. And Larry prayed earlier about political leaders. And it's so easy to become disillusioned by the leaders we see in the world. But when we look to Christ, our leader, there's no disillusionment. Just pure confidence. He will accomplish all that he sets out to do. He will fulfill all his promises. He can be trusted. He leadeth me, O blessed thought, O words with heavenly comfort fraught. Whate'er I do, where'er I be, still tis God's hand that leadeth, leadeth me. And we can say with the psalmist, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And do, and do you see, above all, this is the qualification for leaders in Jesus' church. They are those who know that before they are shepherds, they are sheep. They are sheep under the chief shepherd, leading as his representatives and in the grace he supplies. You see, here's the thing. Leaders and anyone who would aspire to leadership, it's only when you are dependent 
and following the ultimate leader, the chief shepherd that you are actually enabled to embody all of these qualities of godly leadership. All the qualities above are the outworking of a heart that is dependent and trusting in Jesus Christ above all. Failures to lead in the church are all ultimately failures to follow the true leader. But when we trust Christ and follow him, we are equipped as his representatives and servants to lead with all holiness. By faith in Christ, through whom we have the Holy Spirit living in us, we are freed from the penalty and the power of sin and are free to live lives of radical integrity and holiness. It's by faith in Christ that we are equipped to vigilantly extinguish the flaming darts of the enemy. And it's by faith in Christ that we can set a godly example and call others to imitate us as we imitate Christ. Godly leadership, here's the point. If you don't remember anything else from the sermon, remember this. Godly leadership is gospel leadership. Godly leadership is gospel leadership. Without gospel, without Christ, without a dependence on the true leader, the chief shepherd, there is no godly leadership. Without it, God's people perish, but with it, God's people flourish. So brothers and sisters, my final exhortations to you until next year when we do this, hopefully. Choose godly leaders. Pray for and encourage those leaders. Pray for and encourage their families. And and above all, look to Jesus, the captain, the leader and perfecter of your salvation. Look to him to faithfully lead you. And may God receive all the glory in his church. Amen, let's pray. Lord, we we thank you for um, a difficult text like Leviticus 21 and 22. And we thank you for helping us to see um, how you call your leaders to live amongst the, your people. And, and, and as a leader, and I know uh, the leaders here in this room, I assume, feel the same way. Uh, we are, in so many instances, uh, failures. We, 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 we fail to live up to these standards. And so uh, we confess those failures to you. We confess our sins to you and pray that in the grace that you supply in Jesus Christ, you would strengthen us to be faithful in our service to you. Not looking for any kind of self-gain, but looking for your glory, looking for Christ's glory, looking for the good of Jesus' sheep. Lord, again, we thank you for our leader, the captain of our salvation, Jesus Christ, and pray that we would look to him, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated now at your right hand, ruling and reigning until all his enemies should be made his footstool. Lord, I entrust these brothers and sisters to you, knowing that you are a faithful God and that Jesus is a good shepherd. Bless them, encourage them, renew them in their faith, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.